Welcome to Get A Move On, the podcast for movement lovers who are fed up with their injuries and want to enhance their all-round health. On this podcast, I'll help you change how you think about pain and illness so that you can drop the frustration and move freely. I'm Amy, an osteopath turned yoga teacher and mindset coach, and on this pod, I'll be talking about the joys of pain, injury and illness, the mind-body connection and how they relate to our movement practice so that you can get a move on. Hey everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Get A Move On. I'm Jamie and I'm going to be co-hosting the pod. I hope our introduction gave you some sense of what we're going to be chatting about. Today we're going to be finding out about something called movement snacks. Amy, how are you and what is a movement snack? Jamie, I'm so cool today, as I often seem to be. And a movement snack is basically where you bring little bits of movement into your day. It doesn't have to be a replacement of a whole meal of movement, but it can be in addition to it. So it could just be like a 20 minute thing or a five minute thing or just doing some kettlebells while the kettle boils. Literally just doing a little bit of stuff throughout the day to keep your body moving, to keep your muscles working, your joints moving a little bit as well. Yeah, am I right in thinking you actually don't need to do that much movement for it to make an impact? Absolutely. So if you're moving from one room to another, do it in a weird way. (laughs) Just like run from one room to the other or jump or hop or crawl. Different ways of doing stuff is an example. Or just like doing like one pull up and then go back and do what you were doing before maybe sitting down while you're at your desk, you just to kind of do a bit of rolling of your shoulders, moving your head and your neck around. And that just helps to alleviate any extra tension that you might be accumulating throughout your shoulders and your neck and your upper back. And because we're in lockdown, or at least lots of us are in lockdown, it means we're not mm. getting our natural movement snacks, you know, running upstairs because you're on the tube. Absolutely. Or even like going to prep for lunch to get your sandwich and then coming back to your desk. Ironically, that was more movement that we used to be doing that we thought wasn't enough. When you're on a plane and you're on a long flight, what they say is all the oldies in the back every six hours, remember to stand up and stretch around a bit. Six hours? Is that what it is? Yeah, thereabouts. You've got to stand up and give yourself a wiggle. Do you have any favourite types of movement snacks? I think it's whatever is meaningful for you. I actually include handstands in my movement snacks because I love a handstand, of course. I'll do a five, 10 minute handstand practice randomly. It's not like I'm like, okay, I'm scheduling in my handstand practice now. And I'm like, okay, it's time. I just want to just like shake up things a little bit, swing my legs around. (laughs) That's kind of one of my favorites as well. For example, like here, when I'm standing right now, recording this podcast, I'm moving around. I'm deliberately standing so that I can keep moving. The more different information that you're feeding into your brain about joint positions and muscle activity, the more you're able to maintain good mobility. So if you're constantly stuck or not stuck, but you're choosing to stay in one position, that's what your brain recognizes as normal and therefore safe. So the more different positioning you're able to put your body in just randomly throughout your day for example as a movement snack then you're telling your brain this is what my joints are able to do and then your brain is less likely to have a little freak out and perceive a movement as unsafe when you do your official movement meal later on i actually have a Mm -hmm. recommendation for the menu it's something we're calling at the flat the slc which is the Stair Leaping Championship. For everyone who's got a sturdy banister, and it does require a sturdy banister, there's two ways to go about this. 
The first is how many steps can you get to the top of the stairs in without using your hands? So your hands don't necessarily have to be behind your back, but they can't be touching anything. And then the second game, and this is maybe one for the parkourers, is one hand on the wall, one hand on the banister, and how high can you get and how quickly can you get up the stairs? Because there are different techniques, right? So the one I'm playing with at the minute is left hand on the wall, right hand on the banister, lifting yourself up so you get as much airtime as you can, planting yourself horizontal, and then sticking out a leg as far as you can onto the highest mm-hmm. stair, and then seeing if you have the upper body strength to pull yourself in such that you can stand. And I think the record at the minute is eight steps, eight steps Ooh. high, which requires being six foot one and lanky. <laughs> I would lose. I would get to like four. <laughs> and then be like, okay, thanks. I've reached my limit. Bye. I remember reading a study about like two minutes of exercise a week, high intensity exercise, split mm-hmm. into 45 second sections, would give you a significant cardiovascular boost. Do you remember that? Mm. Well, that's what our dad did. He bought himself a little exercise bike and then did like 30 seconds, like, <gasps> and then that was it. Done. I think he did it twice. The other advantage of movement snacks, in as far as I see it, <laughs> is that it's doable. You know, you might not have time to cook. So yeah. you can just run down to the metaphoric Tesco's and get yourself Absolutely. a snack. I think also that another benefit of it is that it takes the overwhelm out of the workout, of the thinking, oh, fuck, I've got to set aside like a whole hour or a whole even 45 minutes. Sometimes 45 minutes feels long. It feels like quite a chunk of time to take out of your day. If you do it in a movement snack, it actually boosts productivity because you're putting more blood circulation, more oxygen to your brain, which then perks you up. It's a slightly different topic, but I do want to talk about it. The worst thing Mm. about being self-employed, I'm speaking as someone who is basically self-employed too, is that you don't have the externally imposed structure that ends up meaning that you can feel relaxed about taking time off. Yeah, there's no such thing. But I was so okay with it. I love doing what I'm doing. And this has totally changed. I came from the nine to five world and that structure I quite enjoyed because I was like, okay, well, cool. Like this is the time when I'm working. And then after work, that's when I go do my parkour. On the weekends, I hang out with my friends. I might do a bit more parkour. And so I had that structure and then I started being self-employed. I didn't have the structure. There was just like no boundaries. And I felt weird about not having any boundaries between work time and personal time. But actually now I'm so kind of focused and driven by what I'm doing. I'm so inspired by what I'm doing. I don't care. Socializing, resting, watching TV (laughs) and that kind of stuff interferes with my purpose. With nine to five, typically you're being employed by someone and it's a big company. And even if you Mm. wanted to do more, it's not obvious what you could do more. You would have to like ask for another shift. Whereas when you're working for yourself, oh my God, there's so much more you can do. Because number one, you're way smaller than the business. And number two, like, hang on, shouldn't I be doing a webinar or something? (laughs) The tasks are never ending, but that's cool. I'm okay with that. Yeah, you mentioned the difference between being on purpose and not, and feeling quite suffocated when you're not on purpose and you're self-employed. How do you know if you're on purpose? Oh, there's a question. I guess you just sort of feel inspired to do what you're doing and you just kind of feel like you know what you're aiming for and what you're trying to achieve. And the reason why you're doing what you're doing is so great that everything else just sort of takes care of itself. You just know exactly why you're doing what you're doing. I think that's huge, actually. In much, much wankier terms, me and a friend the other night were talking about, I mean, I can blame him for the language, a protagonistic identity. I guess it just means that if you know what's exciting for you and you know what your quote unquote purpose is, 
or in practical terms, where you'd like to be. But all of a sudden that gives you a direction. And the fact that you have that direction is kind of now your current identity. Whereas when you don't have the direction, it's quite hard to identify yourself in terms of anything else. I mean, if I was to say, how do you identify yourself? I'd imagine the answer would have something to do with the direction towards movement, pain, perspectives, etc. Yeah. And in fact, I just had a memory of a conversation I had with another friend who was self-employed. This was a few years ago. And I remember her saying something along the lines of she is very fine with having like no specific structure and not having the kind of this is work time, this is playtime kind of thing. And I at that time, because I wasn't doing something that I was really super, super, super inspired to do. I was like, no, no, no. I want there to be specific time when like, okay, now I'm on and now I'm not on. But now that I am way more inspired to do what I'm doing, I'm like, I can be on all the time. When did the work, oh my God, this is the thing. I don't know if there was like a switch or a moment, but it was, I guess like in the last six months or so and I was working with people and helping them overcome their pain through the method and doing that and finding that just like so like mind-blowingly fascinatingly amazing seeing these people have like mad realizations about life and about their bodies and I was like fuck like this is so interesting the way you know is whether the details get you hard or not (laughs) (laughs) I mean it though because if the details like do it for you and you're like oh I want to know more Okay, that's yeah. the thing. Whereas when you like a bit, as soon as it gets a little bit technical, you're like, whoa, I'm out. Then you're like, no, 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 that's not for you. And I guess that's one of the ways you get feedback that what you're doing Absolutely. is for you. I remember this one girl I was working with who had been dealing with an autoimmune condition and she was very kind of resentful of her body for having this condition. But the thing that led to her having that condition was like a history of drug taking. And so she felt kind of guilty and ashamed of herself for having had that phase in her life where she was taking the drugs. In the process of what we were doing, she was like, hang on a minute. In that moment that she was kind of like feeling like she wasn't good enough or whatever. She was like, I felt fucking cool. For her, being cool was really important. And then she had this like whole massive realization about like, yeah, the thing that was making me feel like when she was like four years old, maybe seven, the thing that she felt her whole life had been holding her back. She was like, actually, yeah, I was just cool. In that moment, I was like, goosebumps, tears. And she was just like, whoa. (laughs) Because now she's no longer resenting yeah. the autoimmune disorder. Because the drug taking that caused the autoimmune disorder was actually providing something that she wouldn't have done without. Change of topic slightly, but just because you mentioned yes. drugs. What's your take yeah. on psychedelics? I'm a bit divided about them. The one experience I've had with them was not particularly psychedelic, but it was really fun. And it was like the first time in my life I'd ever taken drugs. And I was like, and now I understand why people take drugs. Like, it's fucking fun. And I was like dancing in the living room and having a great, good time. I even videoed myself dancing, thinking like, fuck, there's like some amazing shit that's coming out right now. And then I watched it afterwards and I was like, what the fuck was that? There was no genius there. None. I thought there was. In that moment, I was like, this is a work of art. This is going to revolutionize the world. Everyone needs to see this. No, no, they don't. They really don't. Like it was proper shite. And I had a realization. I remember sitting like on the floor of my living room thinking, whoa, oh my God, suddenly I understand contemporary dance, which until that point I had no fucking understanding of. But it's also maybe the most middle-class sentence ever. (laughs) 
But now, I don't think I understand it anymore again. I was interested in finding out what you thought. If only because you're kind of on the, as far as I see it, you're on the overlap between yoga and movement. And I think of mm. movement as, I'm mm-hmm. talking parkour, et cetera, et cetera, as quite mm. clean cut and quite anti all that stuff. Whereas I see the yogis as slightly more leggings and LSD. And sage. It smells so fucking disgusting that I'm like, how are people breathing right now? This is horrible. I think, you know what? I think there are loads of people who don't do yoga who are into ayahuasca. I had a conversation the other day with someone who took ayahuasca, mm-hmm. not in a ceremony or anything, as is traditional, but just in London. They changed their life. No, they did say though they were communicating with some beings and apparently... That is an experience that lots of people run into. Yeah. And the person who's really fun on this is Sam Harris. So Sam Harris is like this neuroscientist philosopher guy, but he's interesting because he's a hardcore atheist. He was mm-hmm. one of the four horsemen of atheism, but spent a quarter of his 20s in meditation retreats and is deeply spiritual and doesn't believe in a self. And every third podcast he does is like, if you take ayahuasca, you realize there's no self. And the thing that keeps on coming up is like, oh, you communicate with beings. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm, I could do with communicating with some beings. I don't know what might happen. You communicate with a being and then they say, this is all a lie. Yeah, they give you some paradox or riddle or it would go the other way and you would think your conversation was so profound and before you know it, you're recording yourself dancing and everyone needs to see this. Yeah, and like you write stuff down, you're like, oh my God, write this down, write this down, write this down. And then you read it the next day and you're like, this is fucking gibberish. This is absolute fucking gibberish. This makes no sense. It made perfect sense profoundly. Like life-changing sense at the time that you wrote it life-changing levels of sense turning into like something vague and quite annoying and abstract but i know that people who have been profoundly changed by their psychedelic and ayahuasca experiences and that's cool like i'm not saying it doesn't happen it just didn't happen for me i think sometimes it can be like people go in there in the kind of this is going to heal me kind of way and maybe they come out and they are healed it's good for them like really cool why the hell not but i think it also doesn't necessarily substitute doing the real work there's a thing about ramdas so ramdas is richard alpert i want to say he was a harvard professor he was one of the two guys that got kicked out for doing lsd with undergrads this was in the 60s and they were right at the start of the lsd movement and he ended up going to india to become ramdas and he had a guru and then came back and translated a lot of that stuff to a Western audience for the first real time and kind of the back end of the 70s and the 80s. He asked his guru about drugs. And the guru basically came back and said, well, yeah, you can take drugs and you can meet God. But if you want to stay, you have to do the inner work. Well, can you stay anyway? I mean, that asked the question of what is enlightenment? Ooh. In my moment of having the little microdose of mushroom, I was just like, this is what all the fucking yogis and the Buddha were doing. I just had a real sense of, I could spend every minute of my life meditating to arrive at this point. And all the kind of ancient yogis and whatever talk about meditation, like it's just going to bring you to this place of enlightenment, whatever. They weren't fucking meditating every day. They were taking drugs. That was my one thing. I had absolute certainty. I was like, all the fucking yogis were just taking drugs. And they talk about meditation. They were also taking drugs. I can't prove it, of course, but my intuition, my deep intuition just told me. When I was sort of knee deep into the meditation thing, I definitely in micro ways experienced the relative highs 
and they're very unusual highs. They're qualitatively quite different to what you get in other forms of activity, just from mm. concentration. No one really talks about this, but concentration, and it doesn't have to be narrow concentration on the breath. It could be concentrating while doing yoga or surfing or ironing, but just the single act of concentration or singular concentration rather is fucking yeah. pleasurable. And what ends up happening yeah. in meditation is they talk about jhanas. And jhanas, there are seven of them. And the idea basically is at different levels of concentration, you hit different qualitative waves of euphoria and pleasure. And there's a whole thing about spiritual materialism, which is basically, mm. oh, I took drugs that one time. That was really fun. Let's do that mm. again, but minus the drugs. Hence meditating yeah. to get the jhanas. When I took the mushrooms, I was like, I've had this feeling before, like what you've just said. I've had this feeling before. I've been here. And it was moments parkour I can remember specific moments doing parkour training when I was so focused on what I was doing that it just like a switch in my head at certain dance classes I have never had it doing yoga ever that's interesting on one level but also I'm nervous of making too strong a connection between having a high moment as indicative of anything meaningful no not at all it's just a really nice thing and I had it the other day as well when I was doing parkour training, I was with my friend and we've been doing like some cool kind of movement stuff and like making little roots and stuff. We both and then tabs of LSD and... <laughs> yeah, and then at the end, he was like, come, let's do some conditioning. And I was like, you can do the conditioning. I'll watch because I'm spent. And then he was like, come on, let's just do some precision jumps. And I was like, okay. And then we started doing the precision jumps. One of us basically said, okay, we'll do 10. And if you fuck up, you've got to start again from zero. And as soon as I had done two of them, I felt that switch in my brain into gamma rays, into the zone of high focus. And I was like, fuck me. Okay, well, let's just stay here a bit longer, actually. Let's do more than 10. Because, yeah, that feeling that you're talking about, it's just like, it's just like. Mm. I know that this is a strange takeaway, but what the hell is a precision jump? A precision jump is in parkour when you're basically jumping from one surface onto a small surface so it could be like the ledge of a pavement like a very low thing or it could be onto a wall or onto a railing it's a very precise landing the reason i really ask is because mm. that makes sense in as yeah. far as it requires concentration yeah so much and there's a relationship between concentration and being in this state this is such a strange thing to bring up Last night, I was working at a WeWork in West London, and I was coming mm. back to East London where I live. Mm. And I still had a couple of hours to do, and I was a bit gutted that I hadn't got it done. So at 11 o'clock, I jumped on the circle line. And in a frustrated state, I consumed a whole bag of Haribos. And okay. they were like the super sugary ones, where five oh, yeah. individual Haribos are 13% of your day's energy intake. I had the whole thing in 90 seconds. It was like a day and a half's worth of energy in 90 seconds. So I sat there on my laptop, on an empty tube at 11.30. And it was like on my sugar rush, feeling like I had just taken a pill. And <laughs> then I got to Tower Hill and I was going to change. And I went, I shall just do a loop. So I stayed and worked all the way around. And the reason I bring all that up is because I was sitting there in the zone. And it was like, time goes funny. All of a sudden, minus kind of the scattering of your attention, time just goes really quick. In some ways, I think our experience of time is relative to the amount of mental activity, which is why when you're lost doing an activity, time flies when you're having fun. Absolutely. We've veered off kind of wonderfully from movement snacks. But just before we finish up, I want to tie it back in. Yeah. And say, if there's someone who doesn't really know what movement snacks they should be up to, and it mm. all sounds a bit shit and scary, what should they be going for? Any kind of movement that they enjoy. And I know that might sound really shit and non-committal. Make it meaningful. I want so. examples. I don't know what's meaningful. What can I try? 
Okay, so some examples of movement snacks would be running up and down the stairs. If you live in a flat, just leave the door of the flat and go into the communal staircase. It might be like doing 10 push-ups if you dig push-ups. If you hate push-ups, don't fucking do them. It could be standing in your kitchen, doing some squats. It could be ballet-type exercises, if that's your vibe. It could be holding your cat or your dog and doing movements, lifting the cat or dog above your head, if that is your vibe. It could be doing a handstand, if that is your vibe. It's very personal to you and what kind of movements you find meaningful and useful. All of those things, especially if you have long-term pain, I've noticed a lot of people who have long-term pain, they basically kind of do like one blast of a workout thinking, I'm moving, cool. And then they sit and rest for the whole day and their bodies are basically screaming out for them to do some movement snacks. It's really useful. The friend of mine who has had back pain for kind of many, many years basically said, you know, he noticed that when he was moving house and he was kind of lugging boxes, doing that kind of movement, he noticed that he felt so cool in his body and he didn't have any back pain. And then when he went back to his normal routine of going for a walk in the morning, and then sitting all day and then doing a workout in the evening, he felt sore again. And I think he's not the only one. Yeah, that's a really cool place to finish because it sort of hints at what we're going to be talking about sometime soon, which is kind of the benefits and as far as pain goes to regular movement in the day. All right, sweet, James. Listen, everyone, thank you very much for listening to Get a Move On with Amy Slevin. And as always, we'll see you next week. Bye. That was Get a Move On with Amy Slevin. If you enjoyed that, we'll be back next week with a slightly different topic. And if you didn't enjoy that, we'll be back next week with a slightly different topic. Thanks for listening.